AI is used in healthcare all the time. From helping doctors make a diagnosis among thousands of diseases, some of them rare, to leading researchers to a growing understanding of how patients behave. Yet AI has its limitations, and sometimes the decisions that AI make can be biased, or downright wrong. Today we're talking to a guest who has thought a lot about how AI can help healthcare, how it can hinder it, and how we can make it better. This is Spark Dialogue Podcasts. You can find us at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or wherever you find your podcasts. Spark Dialogue tells the stories of science and technology and how they relate to culture, economics, health, philosophy, ethics, and how we're constantly redefining ourselves as human. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. Hi, my name is Mohammad Aurangzeb Ahmed. I'm an affiliate assistant professor at University of Washington and a research scientist at Kensai. My research focuses on ethical aspects of AI in healthcare, as well as accountability and transparency of uh, AI in healthcare. AI is not new to healthcare. In fact, it has been used for decades to help streamline individual care, to help understand trends, and to improve care for vast amounts of people. So AI actually has been used in the context of healthcare ever since its inception. So some of the earliest examples of applications of AI going all the way back to the 1950s and early 60s were actually in healthcare. So it's not it's not a new phenomenon. That said, over the last decade or so, the use of AI in healthcare has increased dramatically. So in terms of decision making, we see AI in the context of advanced diagnosis, uh, even determining if somebody is going to get a particular disease 10 to 15 years in advance for predicting more mundane things like Let's say if a patient is going to show up for a, a healthcare appointment to how long somebody is going to stay in the hospital to even identifying patients who may be outliers, who may have certain conditions which may not even have been identified by science uh, and everything in between. Before we go into the potential problems that AI has in healthcare, let's also talk about some of the enormous benefits that AI has made in this region. Doctors around the world see billions of patients and try to understand thousands of diseases. Some are rare, and some have connections that are hard to understand when you're a single doctor looking at a tiny slice of the human population. But AI can look at the big, really, really big, picture. It can filter and sort through enormous amounts of data and make connections that might not have been seen by humans. In a number of contexts, it has been uh, really good at uh, risk stratification. So consider the following problem. Uh, So healthcare resources, whether they are monetary, whether they are human resources, they are limited. So new patients come in or let's say for a a particular disease or condition, there's only so much much time which is available. There are only limited number of uh, physicians who can see patients. So we have to determine which patients should be prioritized as compared to others. So because humans have limited knowledge, limited information uh, that we are able to consider at a given time, so that limits what we can do. But the neat thing about AI and machine learning in general is is that these systems are able to look at histories of literally hundreds and thousands and millions of patients simultaneously and are better able to determine, at least in many certain circumstances, which patients should be prioritized over others. And that leads to overall better outcomes. Another example has to do with the human eye and how it is affected by diabetes. So a few years ago, uh, some researchers at Google created this system which could determine if a patient has a certain type of diabetes just by looking at an image of the retina. 
and the predictive performance, uh, or basically the accuracy of that model was more than 99%. And this was unprecedented. Humans cannot come remotely close to having such near-perfect ability to determine if a person has that particular type of diabetes known as uh, diabetic retinopathy. Another really interesting result that they got, which was not part of their study and they did not set out to do, is that also by looking at the retina, you could also predict the, the sex of that person whether that person was male or female. Uh, in retrospect, it makes sense, but that would be another example of AI determining or discovering new knowledge, which was not available to medical science previously. So that's one great thing about AI. It can help diagnose diseases within patients. Taking hundreds of diseases and thousands of symptoms, an AI system might be able to make a connection a doctor would miss. Some of you may remember the show House. On this show, the main doctor, Dr. Gregory House, like a detective in a mystery, tried to deduce what strange ailment affected his patients. Healthcare is like this. The human body is not a book, and often it's hard to say what's affecting a person. Sometimes AI can make this easier. It can take into account lots of diseases and symptoms. But what happens when there's a misdiagnosis? What happens when the AI is wrong? So when we talk about or think about a misdiagnosis, then uh, I mean, humans also misdiagnose. Uh, so that's that's inevitably that's going to happen. Uh, so in general, what we look for or uh, the question that we ask is, is the AI model doing better as compared to a human? Just to, let's say, take a toy example. So if, let's say, the human is right 70% of the time, then is the AI right 85% of the time? Because no AI model is going to be perfect, because no human is going to be perfect. So then the question comes, well, what is the the level of risk? Is that better as compared to that of a human? So that's one dimension. The second question that we're going to ask is, what is the distribution of errors across different groups? Taking our earlier example, so human 70% right all the time versus machine being right 85% of the time. Then we break down uh, how does that 85% look like? Is it the case that model is actually right 85 or even 90% of the time for the majority group, but for let's say minority populations, it's actually doing worse as compared to a human? And that can, that can also happen. And part of the reason could be again that there's just not sufficient amount of data for that particular patient. Uh, one example outside of healthcare uh, that I have is that a few years ago when Google uh, rolled out this feature where on Google Photos where uh, it could automatically tag the photos that you're updated. So it started tagging people with dark skin as gorillas. So it was not the case that it was a deliberate uh, attempt on Google's part or, or it's not that there's a league of evil software engineers but rather it was just not sufficient when they were collecting data. They did not collect sufficient amount of data uh, for people with dark skin uh, when they were training this model. So these types of problems, biases, they can easily be caught. If even in the process of model building, uh, even on the technical side, you have a diverse team of engineers, of research scientists, uh, because all humans, regardless of the back background, we have our own blind spots. So if you have a diverse enough team, then uh, then the idea is that it may be the case that you cannot cover all the blind spots, but you can actually at least maximize that. 
This brings up an interesting question. What happens when the AI and the doctor disagree? Some doctors find that they trust the AI even more than they trust themselves. They might have a gut feeling of what's wrong with their patients, but the AI gives a different diagnosis. What happens then? So that's actually a very interesting phenomenon, and we do see uh, reactions from practitioners on both ends of the spectrum. So one end end of the spectrum is, is that they get a prediction or recommendation from an AI system, which goes against their own training. And so one possible reaction is that that they are likely to not just uh, distrust that particular prediction, but maybe predictions from such AI systems in general, uh, because it just does not gel with what they already know. And there could be a variety of reasons for that. Maybe the AI is making those predictions because it has access to certain types of data that the physician or maybe those set of physicians do not have. Uh, it's able to look at literally tens and thousands of factors simultaneously, which is not possible for humans to do so. On the other side of the spectrum, we also see another phenomenon known as the automation bias. What would happen is that if a physician or let's say another healthcare personnel, if they start relying on AI and machine learning systems, then over the course of time, they'll start believing or trusting that system more than they owe training. So they have been experiments in the context of recommendations for diagnosis based on on looking at X-ray images from AI systems and radiologists in those experiments, they even when they were deliberately given incorrect diagnosis as part of these experiments, they did not trust their own training, but rather they trusted the AI system. So they, it goes both ways. In these cases, transparency is key. Doctors have to understand how AI obtain their data and interpret their data to understand if the decision the AI is making is the correct one. Even in cases where they are getting an input from the system which does not gel with what they already know, if the system is made transparent, then the the end user, in this case a physician, uh, she may be able to interrogate the system whenever possible, and maybe that will lead to even new knowledge, uh, some factors that maybe human physicians have not considered in the past. Other times, we have to remember what data is. It's just data. It is rarely the whole story. Data also needs interpretation, and often the same data can be interpreted different ways. Suppose you have a model which predicts, let's say, cost of patients, let's say, over the course of the next uh, five or 10 years. And what you observe is that, so the model says is that, let's say, uh, and this is from a real world example, from a study, uh, the model says that, let's say, the African-American patients cost less. So they are different interpretations of the same data. So there's one group of uh, physicians who would just uh, dismiss that and then say that, oh, it's because black patients' poor care is the result of, let's say, patients' non-compliance and lack of trust. We can also look at the data and say that, well, it's because Black patients are actually valued less. Uh, there are structural uh, inequalities. There's interpersonal uh, racism, which leads to lesser amount of trust. And as a remedy, let's say if the same amount of uh, care was provided and there was more effort made to build this institutional trust, uh, then we would see similar level of care across different populations. Just because a machine is making a decision doesn't mean it's making an impartial decision. 
In other words, it's not just humans that are biased. AI systems can be as well. No, AI doesn't have a hidden vendetta against certain groups of people. But it can be biased, and this bias can enter in many ways. Through data it's being fed, through the people writing the code, or a host of other sources. When we use AI, especially in an area where life and death decisions are being made, it's important to understand and be aware of these biases. So bias can come from a variety of directions. So it could be because of uh, bias in the data. So that's the most common type of bias. So in general, in our mind, we have this idea that data is always neutral. Uh, so it turns out that that's actually not the case. Any type of data which touches the human world or is being generated by a social process is going to have some sort of bias in terms of maybe certain types of information is being selected or it's data which is based on let's say decisions which were made by humans who to prioritize who not to prioritize so that's one source of bias another source another uh, source is that certain algorithms in themselves uh, when uh, dealing with certain types of data uh, they are likely to be more biased as compared to others and then lastly is that is that even when we build machine learning or ai models we have to optimize them and the manner in which we optimize them that can lead to one type of bias versus versus the other type of bias. Let's talk about the first type of bias, one that arises from human bias. So there is actually a well-known example uh, where which came out a study came out a few years ago where the physicians had collected some data regarding uh, well whether to perform a certain type of surgery uh, based on knee pain that patient was was suffering from. So what these machine learning researchers, what they did was they took the data, so pain reported by the, the patients as well as literally hundreds of fact, other factors regarding their the health of the patients. So they wanted to predict if a knee surgery would be performed or should be performed or not. And what they discovered was that in general, the model's accuracy or performance was really good, except for certain types of populations. Uh, so namely minority populations, especially African-Americans, also socioeconomic uh, factors. So uh, for patients who had a high school diploma or less. And this was very puzzling, uh, puzzling to them. Why is it that uh, it's the model is performing not as well on these patients? So they, they went back to the data that they had access to. And what they discovered was that they, they, they had this hunch actually first. Uh, so one of the variables that they were using was pain reported by uh, or encoded by the physician and there was another variable on pain reported by the patient so they switched these uh, these variables and they took out the the variable which was pain encoded by the physician and when they only used the pain which the patient himself or herself was reporting the performance was almost equal across different cohorts so what does that mean? Uh, so what's going on is that if, let's say, an African-American person comes to the uh, the physician and reports a certain uh, level of pain, uh, the physician was overruling their opinion over uh, his or her own opinion. And instead of a higher level of pain, they were encoding as a lower level of pain. But in this particular case, uh, just just by looking at the data and taking the patient's word over that of the physician, they were able to correct the machine learning model. So that's another, that's 
a particular type of bias which is extremely difficult to detect just the matter in which the data is encoded uh, i mean there's another st statistic outside of machine learning which would help is that uh, so if you look at in the united states the rate at of survival for women after childbirth for african-american women uh, when the physician is also african-american uh, i believe it is more than a factor of three times as compared to when, uh, let's say, the the physician is Caucasian. So these type of bias also creep into machine learning and AI models. Then there's another type of bias, bias that arises when the data itself being fed to the AI system is skewed. Another type of bias can happen is just because of the underlying uh, distribution of the data. By that, what I mean is that and this is a problem that I have actually encountered in my own work. So suppose we want to predict diabetes and uh, we get use data from, let's say, uh, Idaho from a particular hospital system. Uh, so there are 100,000 patients. And out of these patients, let's say less, just 1% are African-Americans. And so because there's just not sufficient data for African-Americans when we build these machine learning models, they're not going to perform as well for African-Americans as compared to others. Uh, so this type of data is more, more easier to recognize. We can rectify this by collecting more data for African-American patients or maybe complementing that data from other sources uh, to get the performance of the model up. One strange example of this is so ridiculous that it's hard to believe it's true. In the 1980s, there was a study on breast and uterine cancer, but only men were invited to participate in the study. Wait a minute. A study on breast and uterine cancer, but only men participate? It turns out that to some people in the medical field, they view the male as the basis of the human condition. So in the mid to early 1990s, uh, Rockefeller did a study. It was actually supported by the NIH on the role of obesity in breast and uterine cancer. And they literally has thousands of people in that study. And there were no women in that study. And... In 19, mid-90s is not that far away. And I mean, you don't have to be a healthcare expert to figure out there's something absolutely wrong with this. Unfortunately, this type of bias seems to frequently affect certain populations over others. So the bias of non-inclusion of certain populations uh, in studies, which, can then, which are then generalized to all populations. So that has been around in healthcare literally for hundreds of years. Uh, that said... A lot of progress has been made in the last 10 years or so. Uh, so we are seeing more balanced uh, representation. So COVID is a good example where uh, that bias has been rectified to a large extent. So my, again, I had to use this word, my favorite extreme example is that uh, this uh, literature survey, which was done uh, in 2011, where they discovered that this preference for uh, sex selection in studies is not just in humans, but even in animal studies, apparently researchers have this bias of including male animals. So these researchers, they uh, surveyed 10 different fields, literally hundreds of research papers, and they discovered that the male animals outnumber female anim animals by one ratio to five and a half. So, I mean, it's, it, it could be unconscious bias, but it, it's, just, it's just remarkable how, how biased people can be. Now, com coming back to the closer to the, the, the human world and how these biases creep in. So there are historical biases against uh, minority groups in 
so for example in, in the context of let's say the US uh, African Americans uh, bias against women that's been almost universal even if you look at like the the history of early modern medicine look at seminal figures like let's say Carl Linnaeus who's the the father of biological class- classification system van leeuwenhoek father of microscope uh, marcello malpagini histology i mean all of these these seminal figures they had in their work statements that we would consider now uh, very racist. And then uh, at the word of caution, I, sh- I should also add that this is not a modern phenomenon and not something which is just limited to the West. If you look at any classical civilization, uh, whether it's ancient Greek, uh, Middle Eastern, Persian, Indian, Chinese, we do see this type of bias against certain marginalized groups. Coming back to closer to the present day, what we observe is that uh, so there's bias of non-inclusion. There's also bias in terms of intervention. So, for example, uh, it's been observed that certain types of painkillers are prescribed less for African-American women for many conditions as compared to others. There's uh, bias at the level of not not just intervention, but uh, I guess information encoding, as well as just not including people in policymaking. But biases like this are not a given. By making sure that a diverse population is sampled in the studies, biases like this are less likely to crop up. Another thing which is needed is having stakeholders and people who will be affected by these models is part of the exercise of model building. So I do recognize that most people do not have uh, expertise in machine learning or AI, and they don't even need to be experts in these fields. But that said, uh, these systems are already making life and death decisions for literally hundreds of millions of people. And so there should be some level of literacy. And so because of that, when these systems are being, being built, these stakeholders or these population, these marginalized populations who may be affected by these systems, they should be part of that particular process. Uh, so to illustrate, so let me give an give a real world example that I have come across um, in my own work. So there is a problem of predicting if, let's say, a patient is going to show up for an appointment or not. Uh, so it's called the no-show prediction problem. Uh, so from a machine learning perspective, uh, so the way that you can build models is that when you look you look at patient characteristics and their history of uh, of showing up or not showing up for appointments, and you build a machine learning model and you deploy it and then you see how well it does. Uh, what's been observed is that for this is for a particular model that we used for a particular locale in Illinois. So the model performed really well, uh, and it was performing really well for minority populations. But if you break down the predictions, uh, it was predicting that in general, uh, African-American and Hispanic populations, uh, these patients, they were not going to show up for uh, their appointments. So one way to think about it is that, well, that's that's the end of, well, we have built the model, we have made these predictions, and well, that's the end of it. So if the goal of AI models is to make a positive change, then uh, AI should not, or the role of AI models should not end here. So you should ask the question, why is it that uh, the model is predicting that uh, Hispanics and African-Americans are not showing up for these appointments? It turns out that there's a high correlation between a person's socioeconomic status and uh, that person's race in this case. So it's because a lot of these appointments they are during the day, People have other responsibilities. They cannot uh, take uh, time off of work. They are primary caregivers for other other folks. 
So because of these factors, people are did even despite the fact that they know that their health in the long term will be negatively affected, uh, they are not able to uh, uh, show up. So then these models then can be used as an impetus to maybe improve healthcare delivery. So there are different avenues that were explored in this particular case was, well, maybe instead of them going to the hospital, maybe the hospital comes to them, have local clinics uh, or mobile clinics providing transportation. So basically, when we think about AI in healthcare, we should not think about this as an AI problem, but it's at, or rather not just a technical problem, but it's a technical problem and a larger systems problem that need to be addressed. Why does AI make the decision the way it does? What factors is it taking into account? What connections is it making? Sometimes this may seem hard, if not impossible, to understand. AI can see connections and correlations that our human brains may not ever be able to dream up. In these cases, is it okay to trust that the machine is just doing its job? Do we have to actually understand how it works? After all, many of us don't understand how a light switch works. We just know that we flip it on and the light goes on. Is AI the same way? Should it be the same way when so many lives are in the balance? So in healthcare, uh, decision-making could be a matter of life and death. That said, uh, I would still refrain from making umbrella statements regarding transparency and life and death situations in, within the context of AI in healthcare. It's better to think of the trade-off between transparency and decision-making as part of a spectrum. So allow me to unpack that. So on one end of the spectrum, think about uh, decision-making. Uh, let's say we have a machine learning model which, which predicts uh, end of life. That is, if a patient is going to die in the next uh, three months or not. And so based on the prediction of that model, uh, we are the physician is going to send the patient or recommend that patient should be sent to hospice care or not. I mean, that can, that is literally a matter of life and death. So in this particular case, you, if you are getting input from a machine, you want to be absolutely sure that that model is right. And also the thing is that even humans can, I mean, in many cases, it can be very difficult to predict. Even humans can be wrong. There have been cases where you send somebody to hospice care for six months and you know they are alive ten, even 10 years after that. I mean, that, that has happened. So in this case, when you're getting input for a machine, you want to be absolutely sure. And because of that, you want to have absolute transparency. You want to know why is it that that model is making a prediction. Because at the end of the day, all models are going to be uh, going to have a certain level of performance. They're going to be wrong uh some of the time. Uh, there, there's one of my favorite quotes from a statistician is that from a statistician called Box is that all models are wrong, some models are useful. So that, that's one way, one way to think about this. So in this side of the spectrum, uh, for this use case, transparency is absolutely required. Now let's look at the other side of the spectrum. So now suppose you are a planning manager for a particular ward and you have to determine what are your staffing needs, let's say for the next few hours. And you have machine learning models or an AI model which predicts, well, in the next hour you need uh, five people, after that you need three people. So you're given, given a black box model, it has 90% uh, precision uh, or, and accuracy. 
So in this particular case, it's less important to know exactly why the model is saying that you need five people or three people. So even if you're off by one or two, that's that's still okay. You can you would be able to meet your staffing needs. So you, in this case, uh, if you want more uh, accuracy, then you can go transparency. Versus in the first case that we talked about hospice care, you need uh, you need performance and you need transparency. And then between these two uh, extremes of the spectrum, there's uh, there's a host of other cases where the trade-off would be uh, some somewhat in between. One important aspect to remember about transparency. Not all of us are computer programmers, nor mathematicians. Doctors who are the end users may not have a computer science background to understand the limitations of AI, issues on bias, or the many other ways that AI could be wrong. So how should we deal with this? Yeah, so this is again one of those places where uh, it's next to impossible to generalize. So it will vary by scenario to scenario. If you're talking about an algorithm or a model, then if for certain, let's say for a machine learning researcher, if you give them a set of equations, uh, well, uh, those are transparent to them. For majority of the population, actually the world, it'll just be a bunch of Greek symbols, if that. That said, in general, when we talk about transparency, so we should have the end user in mind. As an example, think about a model let's say, which is based on predicting, let's say, uh, how long a patient is going to stay in a hospital, or let's say if they'll be readmitted in the next 30 days. So if your end user is a physician, then, and your model predicts that, well, they'll be, there's high likelihood that they'll be readmitted, then from their perspective, maybe the physician would be interested in knowing that, well, the reason that this is being predicted is because similar patients who had uh, similar comorbidities or similar dis- diseases and conditions at this level of health were readmitted previously. So that's why it's not wise to release that particular patient. Versus, let's say you are a planning manager in the hospital and and your goal is to determine, let's say, what are, again, what are your staffing needs then? The reasons that you need for that may be different. So maybe you just need to know that, uh, well, I'm predicting this because, well, this uh, patient is a, has uh, cardiac conditions, heart conditions, or this patient has kidney-related conditions, and these different type of patients go in different wards. So the type of explanation that you get for different stakeholders and users uh, would be different. Transparency is very important, but here's something else you might not have thought about. What if making algorithms transparent actually limits what they can do? In other words, in attempting to make their AI systems understandable, are we really shooting ourselves in the foot when it comes to performance? So that is actually a real issue in AI. So there's a trade-off. In general, there's a trade-off between transparency and performance, or that is the predictive performance, or in layman's terms, the accuracy of a model. So in general, the more transparent the model or easier to explain, uh, the less accurate it will be and vice versa. Uh, That said, there are exceptions to this. More recent research has been done where on creating models which are accurate as well as uh, transparent. But in general, that this uh, trade-off has been observed. So this is where we have to think in terms of a trade-off. What is the performance or accuracy of the model? Is it sufficiently high? And if it's sufficiently high, then can we use this model? So one argument uh, which is made by certain researchers against transparency is that, well, if you have a model, 
which is right 99% of the time, and let's say humans are only right 60% of the time, then why would you not use this particular model? Because humans are limited in terms of cognition. Uh, there's just so many factors that we can think about at a given point in time. And what is what is even the reason that we are using computers, let alone AI to begin with? It's because to handle data, to ha- think about factors that humans, not just as individuals, but as groups cannot think about at a given time. Uh, so then why not use these uh, models to begin with? So one example that I got to illustrate this is actually from uh, David Weinberger. The example that he gives is that think about how you treat your car. So for a person person like me, I mean, I, I don't, I mean, I drive a car, but I don't know much about how cars work. If my car breaks down, I cannot really fix it. So when your car breaks down, uh, you go to the mechanic and think about the mechanics, not necessarily in the U.S., but globally. So vast majority of mechanics live in developing in the developing world. The vast majority of them are actually illiterate. A lot of them cannot re- even read or write. So when you go to the mechanic, you are you do not ask the mechanic about the internal combustion engine, or you won't ask them uh, about the third law of thermodynamics. But you do still have the expectation that well, you give them your car, and then they'll somehow magically fix your car, and well, that's what they do. Uh, David's uh, perspective is that was that well, we should perhaps we should adopt a similar stance to our AI models that. Either now or maybe in the future, we will reach a level of complexity which is beyond human comprehension. So if we expect that, well, these models will have will perform well 90% of the time far above humans, then then just like the mechanic, if they perform well, then that should be acceptable. So, there, so there's a debate in the community with respect when to use or expect transparency, when to use certain models or not. And uh, it seems to be converging to the point where at first approximation, think about the risks involved in terms of decision making. So if you make a particular decision, what are the negative ramifications? And then beyond that, what is the overall performance as compared to humans? Taking all of this into account, misdiagnosis, transparency, and bias... What happens when things go horribly wrong? Is it the doctor's fault? Is it the designer of the AI system? The AI itself? Who's to blame? And who's accountable? So there are two levels of decision-making involved. So one is that you get input from an AI system and you consider that input uh, in your decision-making. So an example would be, let's start with an extreme example. So going back to our hospice care example. So the AI model says that the patient has a less than 0.05% of surviving beyond three months. So in this particular case, the physician is going to take as just one data point amongst many data points that uh, they have in terms of decision-making whether to send that patient to hospice care or not. So in this particular case, the liability would be minimal because at the end of the day, it's the physician who's making the decision and what the AI system is saying, that's just one input. The danger in the, in this particular case is that, so I, I, earlier I alluded to the automation bias. So to unpack that further, the automation bias is this phenomenon that over the course of time, when humans use uh, computational systems and not just AI systems, they get more and more reliant on them to the extent that they will even start overruling their own gut feeling, their own expertise, and take the recommendation from the AI system over them. Problem with that is that it's 
because this is something which is going on in a person's head and even unconscious, it's extremely difficult to measure, except in very controlled settings. So that's one type of decision making. The second type of decision making is that the output from the machine learning system, so that that's actually not just taken as an input, but as a definitive recommendation and this and decisions are made based on that. To the best of my knowledge, so we do not have systems yet where the output from the AI model, so that's literally the decision that will will be made. So there's always, especially for high stakes or even medium stakes decision-making, there's always a human in the loop. And the reason being that all these healthcare organizations, they do recognize that it, that in a lot of these use cases, AI is just not advanced enough. It still makes mistakes. Uh, there's, a, there's a question of liability. So right now, the onus of responsibility is still on, let's say, a physician or their organization. That said, I do see that that may change, let's say, in the next uh, 10, 15 years or so when these systems become more advanced and when it's shown that they are just superhuman in their performance. Then the, the question, uh, they, we would be able to address that question, well, where does the onus of responsibility lie? So the discussions that I've seen in the AI and the law community, so there's a question, well, is it the software engineers? Is it uh, the choice of algorithm? Is it how it's deployed? So there's no one definitive answer where the responsibility is because in some ways responsibility is distributed and as we have seen in other domains that's also a and i hate to use this word and people also use this as an opportunity to just skirt responsibility altogether so how how legislation involves or even industry standards evolve in the next five ten years would be very interesting ai does not operate in a vacuum In any case, and especially in healthcare, where so many people are affected on a personal and intimate level, we have to remember that AI is part of a system. It's part of our world and does not operate apart from it. We should definitely think about AIs in healthcare, AI in general, not necessarily as a technical problem, uh, which is left to engineers or AI researchers. But it's a systems problem. So it has technical aspects, it has human aspects, has aspects, social aspects, or even aspects with respect to uh, infra- infrastructure because decision making is not done in a vacuum. Um, all of us are part of a culture, uh, we have our biases. That entails that when you're building these models, you should engage a diverse set of uh, stakeholders and uh, potential users and people who would be affected by that system. AI has the potential to do so much good, to literally save lives. By recognizing its limitations and biases, we can work to improve what it can do to help us to live healthier and longer lives. Spark Dialogue Podcast is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. You can find us at the web at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or any of your podcasting platforms. If you're a patron of this podcast, be sure to check out the Patreon page all this month for bonus content related to this episode. And if you're not a patron and want to support this podcast in its production costs, please head over to patreon.com sparkdialogue. And thank you everyone for your support. Background music you heard are clips from 18 Pieces, Soda by Soda, Sky Dub by Psychic, Start to Grow, the CDK Mix by Analog by Nature, 
and Reuse Noise, DNB Mix by Spinning Merkaba. All these songs are licensed under Creative Commons Attribution License, and more information and links to these songs can be found in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com. <laughs>